0: Hey, Matt Techman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask if you're a fan of the show to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. Felicitations, a philosophy podcast ordinarily recorded at the University of Chicago, but which today is being brought to you from New York. With me is Kathy Legg, Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Waikato, and she is here to discuss what Peirce's philosophical categories can do for you.
1: Hey Matt, (laughs) thanks for inviting me.
0: Pleasure to have you. So, today we're talking about Charles Sanders Peirce, the 19th century philosopher and polymath, Could you tell us a little bit about who he was and what his philosophical contributions were?
1: Okay, well, it's hard to know where to start with Peirce. He was active in so many areas. But he was the son of Benjamin Peirce, who was one of the top mathematicians in the United States in the 19th century, and also served as a kind of general scientific advisor to the US government so Perce grew up in a home where all of the top scientists of the country were visiting and having dinner and so forth and so he picked up a lot of knowledge of a lot of different areas of science but the one that he was really passionate about from a young age was logic and he had a broader conception of logic than is the norm now in our universities so A lot of what we call epistemology and philosophy of science now came under the heading of logic for Peirce. So he was really interested in an overall understanding of how the many different disciplines work towards a conception of truth and how to make that process better As a pragmatist, he was always thinking about uh, the ways that scientists were going about what they did and trying to distill out the essence of progress and to understand that within a broader, formal framework.
0: So Peirce is one of those traditional philosophers who wrote about, it seems, almost everything, if you're looking through his works, but a topic that comes up again and again in his writings – is uh, the idea of like basic philosophical categories. What is a category in this special, sort of fundamental philosophical sense, as opposed to like, well, there's the category of a table and the category of a chair. When philosophers talk about the categories, what are they talking about?
1: Okay, so that's a really large question. And that's yeah the topic of our interview today. And I think it's a really important question for contemporary philosophy because it connects to a whole way of doing philosophy which was quite sidelined I think in the 20th century and yet I think we lost certain important things with certain moves that were made particularly by Quine. So let me first explain the concept of a category itself in philosophy and what makes it distinctive. And I want to say that the concept of a category is different than the concept of a property. So a popular approach to contemporary metaphysics today would be to think that reality consists of things and things have properties. So we have things like tables and chairs and electrons and so forth. And then these things have properties like colours and shapes and electric charge or whatever. And if you can give a complete list of all of the things and all of the properties that those things have, then you have exhausted reality. So I want to say that investigating philosophical categories is somehow distinct and deeper inquiry than looking for all of the properties that exist. An old-fashioned term for categories, which I think is found in Peirce, is modes of being. And one way to get at the idea that modes of being is distinct from investigating properties is the concept, which does still survive in philosophy, of the category error. So if I say to you, what colour is the number eight? Or if I say to you, the number eight is a very yellow colour, isn't it? then you kind of want to say that what I just said is false, but then that doesn't seem quite right either. So there seems something wrong with the question and something wrong with the answer, which is over and above just saying, well, the, color eight, uh, sorry, the number eight is yellow or the number eight is not yellow. There's something fundamentally misguided about a question like that, at least if we take the terms literally. So that's categories... <laughs>
0: Okay, so there's this idea that became prominent in 20th century philosophy, thanks to uh, the work you mentioned of the philosopher Willard van Orman Quine. And the idea there is that if we can just list all of the objects there are in the world, and then list all the properties that each of the objects in the world have, we will have described everything there is to describe in the world. So if you take Matt, for example, he's an object in a certain sense, and he has a whole bunch of properties. So, whatever. He's five foot eight, and he's a human, and he's wearing a green shirt, and he lives in Chicago, and blah, blah, blah. You know, we can, in principle, write down a whole bunch of properties that Matt has. And it seems like what you're saying here is that even if we have a really long list with a bajillion different properties that are true of the object Matt, we will have missed something we won't have described everything that there is to truly describe about Matt. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so I guess I would take a step back and say um, we're looking at describing reality. So reality doesn't just consist in different things having different properties, but also different modes of being. That's part of the investigation of the most fundamental nature of reality. So Quine made a very key move when he said that he basically said there's only one mode of being. He called it existence. And so he said there's not different kinds of existence, there's only different kinds of thing. And so he was, I think, consciously putting the investigation into philosophical categories into the past. And then his famous slogan, to be is to be, the value of a bound variable bracket in our best scientific theory That was also a key move here. One unfortunate consequence of this move by Quine and others to a single mode of being is that all of the substantive questions about reality get allocated to the natural sciences and then philosophers are left sort of sitting and examining analytic truths And there's an interesting example of this kind of thinking in a recent interview with Peter Unger in 3AM magazine, which a lot of people discussed when it came out, which seemed to many people to present quite a somehow dismaying or disappointing vision of philosophy. So in this interview, Unger says, basically, philosophy is a bunch of empty ideas And to quote him, he says, to say new and interesting things about the world, you really have to engage with a lot of science. He says, people who are signing up for philosophy want to learn something about the ultimate nature of reality. And when you're doing philosophy, you don't have a prayer of offering anything close to a correct or even intelligible answer to those questions. Now, I think nothing could be further from the truth. So we have a dualism, if you like, here between sort of empty analytic claims and then on the other hand, the synth, what used to be called the synthetic claims, the claims about reality are all the business of the natural sciences.
0: And Wh- analytic, to clarify, means true by definition. Oh, right? sorry. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so the traditional idea of philosophy was that there was a thing called the synthetic a priori This is what Immanuel Kant was trying to investigate, which is the role that philosophers can have in investigating the deepest nature of reality, a priori, which means just by thinking about it. And philosophical categories is part of how we do that, I think.
0: Okay, so the idea behind there being different modes of being is that it's not just that Well, there's this thing, and we can ask, does it exist or not? Rather, there are kind of like different ways of existing. There isn't just existence, period. There's existence as a Mm. blah versus existence as a blah blah.
1: Mm. Although I prefer uh, being to existence here. So there's different ways of being, Mm -hmm. because I think the concept being is more broad in its association in people's minds. I think Mm -hmm. existence tips people towards thinking of material objects like tables and chairs.
0: So what would be an example of a different way of being that's not existing?
1: Yeah, so think about possibility. Um, We think that we have a lot of knowledge about what things are possible as well as the things that actually are the case. I'm a philosopher, but I like to think that it's possible that I could have had another career. For instance, I might have been a lawyer. And it seems that we can intelligibly talk about these possibilities, and yes, they don't have the same kind of being as the things that actually are the case. And yet, it does seem that, at least in some cases, we want to say some claims are true and some claims are false about what's possible.
0: Right, absolutely. So I don't have a sister, but imagine maybe I could have had a sister if certain things in the past had turned out differently. And... We can go further than that. We can say, if I had had a sister, certain things would have been true about her. For example, she probably wouldn't have been a native Swahili speaker, and so on and so forth. So a possible object, I guess, would be an example of something that has a way of being, which just means something like, we can talk about it and think about it, but it doesn't exist because it isn't an actual object. Yes. Okay, so, yeah, we have these two different examples of ways of being. And Charles Sanders Peirce thought that there were three different ways of being, which he called firstness, secondness, and thirdness, which I have to say is quite a mouthful. (laughs) Um, What exactly is Peirce getting at with, uh, let's start with firstness.
1: Okay, okay. So I'll just give a little bit more background. So Peirce started his early education in philosophy with reading Kant's Critique of Pure Reason over and over again until he'd almost memorised it. And Kant has 12 categories. So he has like a table. It's kind of four by three. And basically, Peirce decided that the three was the most important division in Kant's system of categories. And so he sort of took that and refined it down to the essence of what he saw that three-way distinction was. And so one of his early papers was called On a New List of Categories. Uh, It was published in the 1860s. So he said, uh, hooray, look, I've got the 12 down to three. And he saw this as a major achievement. So firstness, secondness and thirdness are very abstract concepts. And if you like, they show up, they have different faces, if you like. So they, they show up in different areas of philosophy in different ways. But there's a kind of um, a very general structure that they all have in common. So firstness is basically, if we understand the concept logically, it's anything that's just one, (laughs) just one thing in and of itself. And so it's not related to any other thing in the way that it is. So if you think, well, what are some of the things that are monadic in that way? Just one thing. Well, you could think of a pure color, you know, just in and of itself. You could think of the kinds of qualities that can't be explained to other people unless they've experienced those qualities. So, for instance, a deep red has a particular quality in and of itself that you just have to experience to know what it is. So that would be one example of
0: firstness. So could we say that firstness is the quality that anything that's super particular has, that it's so particular, there's only one of it, and it's the quality of being totally unique.
1: (laughs) So it's not necessarily that there is only one of it, because when you say that, you're already comparing that thing with other potential things in the world. But... It's more that you're saying that what you're talking about is some kind of intrinsic quality of something in and of itself. So it might be repeated. There might be more reds. But the fact that there are more reds doesn't change the redness of the red itself that you're looking at, if that makes sense. (laughs) That was quite abstract distinctions here.
0: Okay, I think we've... uh Got some examples on the table about firstness. Uh, Maybe we should move on to secondness.
1: Okay, so secondness is dyadic. It's something that is, a its essence is two things interacting in some way. So if you might think about if I, I'm walking through a room and I bump the table and there's that moment of shock (laughs) where knee hits table and you didn't expect it, and there's a sort of a forceful kind of striking, one thing comes up against another thing. And what we're talking about is the interaction between those two things. That's a secondness.
0: So firstness is a quality of something sort of being itself, being its own thing, and secondness is the quality of it exhibiting its distinctness from something else by interacting with the other thing or something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just gave you a physical example, but... If this is a general concept, so we could have a more psychological example if you like. so personalities coming into conflict can be equally a case of secondness. when I if you think of a baby you might argue that a baby is born into firstness and you know the, a baby's initial experiences are just you know the qualities of things but then as the baby starts to interact with its environment, it starts to test the limits of self and other and so the baby starts to have you know maybe some unpleasant experiences with other objects in the world which are not itself and that's the way that the baby learns that it has a self.
0: Okay and how about thirdness?
1: (laughs) So thirdness is three things in relationship to one another. Thirdness is triadic And the relationship has to be essentially triadic. So it has to not be reducible to, you know, maybe two sets of two things. So what would be an example of that? Well, one example that Purse gives is a gift. So a gift involves a giver, a receiver, and a thing that's passed across the gift. And all of those three things have to work together. So Pearce says, if I throw something away and it happens to hit you, that's not a gift. So me throwing something away, that's a dyadic event. And then the thing hitting you, that's a separate dyadic event, but that's not a gift. So all of the three things have to,
0: like I said, work together. Okay, right. And then like a love triangle or something. That would also
1: not (laughs) be... Yeah, well, insofar as the love triangle has its own, uh, you know, behavior, has its own dynamic as they do. Yes, Mm -hmm. that would be maybe an unfortunate example of thirdness. (laughs) Uh, Other examples of thirdness are very much to do with thinking and interpreting the world. Let's go back to the example of me bumping the table that we talked about with secondness. So if I bump my knee on the table and then I think, wow, that table's hard, that's now a thirdness. So when I was just bumping the table and going, ouch, that was a secondness. But when I take a general property like hard, I attribute that to the table and say, that table's hard. That table should be moved to another part of the room or whatever. We now have me, the table, and we have this general concept of hardness, which are all involved in that interpretation. So that's a thirdness. So it's with thirdness that you really get thought, according to Peirce, and language.
0: So um, thirdness then is the quality that concepts have, you might say.
1: Yeah, I would rather say thirdness is the structure that Mm -hmm. uh, concepts have, yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. But what is it that's... Three about the characteristic of hardness. Isn't it one thing? Like, how's it bound up with me bumping my knee against the table?
1: So it wasn't the characteristic of hardness itself, but it was me applying that concept to that table.
0: Ah, okay. I see. Oh, that's like giving somebody a book because there's the giver the receiver and the book yes. likewise in the interaction between you and the table there's you the table and then the thing that you perceive in the table the hardness yes that's right
1: that's right but any time we use language you know the basic structure of a proposition is you know some kind of subject and some kind of predicate and they're put together so that's actually the same structure that's the basic thirdness which is required to construct any proposition at all so you, now you see how general the concept is.
0: So in the sentence, Matt is happy, there's the subject, Matt, mm-hmm. there's the predicate, happy, yes. and then there's the person making the assertion who's the third party or, or the active assertion or something?
1: Yeah, well, we can say you know the, that a predicate is applied to that subject and it's applied by me if I say the sentence, Matt is happy, but then anyone else who un- hears the sentence and understands it has that same process of interpretation going on in their mind so any interpretation is a thirdness in that sense
0: It's interesting this notion of the categories is it seems like every, every one of these categories is like a different kind of encounter or at like least that's sort of mm, how I'm thinking of it yeah. like an encounter with a different kind of structure
1: yes. yes, that's a good way of putting it
0: Is there a fourthness?
1: <laughs> that's a good question so Peirce did a lot of investigating into that question Because he had a claim that his three categories were not only irreducible to one another. So I said before that a thirdness can't be decomposed into any set of dyadic relations. But the three categories were also sufficient. So basically there is no fourthness. So although no thirdness can be decomposed into secondnesses, any quote unquote fourthness could be decomposed into thirdnesses. So I'll give you an argument for that with an example. So we have to think of like a four-way relationship. So imagine that somebody is buying a house. So we could have the buyer, number one. We could have the seller, number two. We could have the real estate agent, (laughs) that's number three. And we could have the house itself, that's number four. So, why is that? I buy a house with the following real estate agent. Why is that not an example of fourthness? Well, Peirce said you can think about the event of the house buying. And this is actually also, if we look at 20th century philosophy, this is um, a Davidsonian account of events. Anyway, so we can say there is this event. The event was a house buying. So now we have, we have a subject predicate structure. So we have event E was a house buying Yeah, subject predicate. So that's just a thirdness. We have in event E, I was the buyer. That's another thirdness. In event E, someone else was the seller. That's another thirdness. And in event E, so-and-so was the real estate agent. So I've decomposed that fourthness into thirdnesses.
0: So the philosopher Donald Davidson famously argued that in sentences that involve human action, you can understand them as being synonymous with sentences about events. So the sentence, Evelyn kissed Hillary, can be understood as really saying, uh, there was an event, it was a kissing, Evelyn was the kisser, Hillary was the kissy. That's right. Something like that. So what you're doing is you're breaking the sentence down into smaller sentences, so you're you're analyzing the sentence that doesn't actually mention events in terms of events. Yes. But in this case, it's interesting. Uh, What you had was an example of an interaction that looked like it was an interaction between four things, but what Peirce suggested was that you can break it down into a bunch of smaller interactions between three things. Yes. And still be talking about the same thing without loss of information. As that's right, that's right. And then he wanted to maintain that no matter what example of an interaction between four things you try to come up with, you could always sort of break it down into really just being a bunch of interactions between three things, you know, sort of assembled together or something. But giving somebody a book, you can't do that. You can't take the book out of the equation. You you can't be like, well, there was a giving between two people and there was this book too or something. Yeah, that (laughs) doesn't make any sense.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
0: So earlier when we were thinking about Peter Unger's interview, there was a concern that a lot of philosophy today is perhaps overly beholden to kind of a way of thinking about questions that's modeled on the natural sciences. And in particular the natural sciences don't really examine different ways of being. They're more interested in cataloging, doing the kind of thing that we attributed to Willard von Norman Quine earlier, namely rounding up all the things there are in the world and listing their properties.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How does natural science fit into this firstness, secondness, thirdness scheme we've just been discussing? Uh, how should we understand the the work of the scientist in this framework?
1: So, Puss thought a lot about how Human knowledge should be organised, and yet yeah, the place of the natural sciences within that. And again, some of the work that he did here seems perhaps old fashioned from a more 20th century perspective, but nevertheless, I think it's a valuable enterprise to think about how everything fits together. So, Peirce used the term architectonic, which is a term in Kant, and it's just like architecture is building a house and planning the overall structure. Architectonic is the same thing for knowledge. And so Puss arranged what he called a hierarchy of the sciences. And the basic structure was meant to be that they were sort of arranged one on top of the other in a tower. And each science, so this is science in a very broad sense, just meaning knowledge, each science gets Principles from the science above it in the hierarchy, and it takes data from the science below it in the hierarchy. So basically, knowledge is inheriting, concepts are being inherited down this tower. So the basic structure of the tower is right on top is mathematics. So this is, you know, a purely formal science, and mathematics. Peirce had a hypothetical interpretation of mathematics. So mathematics doesn't talk about what's actual at all. Mathematics makes no positive claims. Mathematics just tells you if you make this hypothesis, then this must follow. So mathematics is the science that draws necessary conclusions. Directly after that, Peirce put a science of phenomenology which is the science or the process of just sort of opening your eyes and looking around you and describing what you see. So Peirce got the concept of the philosophical categories where firstness is like a quality and secondness is like a, a brute encounter with other things in the world and thirdness is some kind of mediation or interpretation. He thought about those experiences of the categories through phenomenology. Next up, we get the three normative sciences. So these are aesthetics, then ethics, then logic. I find this part really fascinating. This is a very different way of thinking about these areas of philosophy than is mainstream today. But the aesthetics, ethics, and logic, they are arranged based on the three categories of firstness, secondness, and thirdness. So they all concern the good. They're the normative sciences. Aesthetics is about whatever is good in and of itself. So that's a firstness. Ethics is whatever is good in the way of action. So that's going out in the world and doing things. That's a secondness. But ethics is a special case of aesthetics because... What's good in the way of action is a special case of what is good in and of itself. And then logic is whatever is good in the way of thought. And thought is a special case of action for Peirce, pragmatist. So logic depends on ethics, actually, for (laughs) its principles about what's good in the way of action So we've got aesthetics, ethics, logic, and then from logic we get to metaphysics, and then from metaphysics we get to physics, and then we start with the natural sciences. So obviously there's a lot going on in those upper levels before you ever get to the natural sciences, so there's a huge difference here with Unger's vision of you either do physics or chemistry or biology, or you're just... I don't know what he thinks exactly, but thinking about the meanings of words and disputing about if word X means this, then word Y has to mean this. But there's nothing there about looking at the structure of reality.
0: So this is a really fascinating hierarchy of uh, different human enterprises. This idea you mentioned that everything in the hierarchy draws data from the practices below it and principles from the practices above it. So aesthetics, the philosophy of art, you know, the the philosophy of beauty, that's pretty high on this hierarchy. So is that to suggest that maybe, you know, people who are appreciating art and writing about beautiful things draw on data from, like, chemistry?
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, is that such a terrible idea? But I will say that the discipline of aesthetics for Peirce, it's something that he only started thinking about seriously quite late in his life. He never saw that as really the area of philosophy that he was terribly interested in earlier on, ethics also. But when he developed his hierarchy of the sciences, he came to see that it needed to have this position quite high up. But Peirce's categories give you a way of thinking systematically about what would be the point or the underlying purpose of studying aesthetics. So earlier on, I said that if we think of aesthetics as the first of three normative sciences, then that would lead us to think of aesthetics, just as the study of anything that's good in and of itself. So I suppose intrinsic goodness is the real purpose of aesthetics. And that's a much broader inquiry than just beauty. So then you get interesting questions like, what is it for something to be intrinsically good? What does that mean? Why would we say such a thing? This thing is good in and of itself. Is it because it's got some kind of harmony? Or, yeah, I mean, obviously art looks good in some kind of sense, and that's why aestheticians have studied art, but they don't necessarily have to restrict themselves to that. And what Peirce ended up thinking was that the most fundamental concept of what is good in and of itself is the growth of concrete reasonableness is actually how he put it so the way in which a harmony of thought and ideas can increase itself and become our thoughts and practices become more integrated and more successful, because his concept of reasonableness incorporated that.
0: So one school of thought that's very influential today is often given the name naturalism, and of course naturalism is, different people mean different things by the term naturalism, but usually it refers to a style of philosophy that's very closely tied to what's happening in science right now, the latest advances in science. And there are certain philosophical naturalists who argue that, I mean, really, philosophy is kind of just a part of science, and philosophers and scientists are really kind of doing the same thing. You've argued that Peirce's vision of the relation between these different human endeavors gives us an, an attractive alternative to contemporary naturalism. So what's that alternative picture? How do you think philosophy really is related to science?
1: So I want to say that Peirce is a naturalist also. And so even though I've been talking about the quote unquote synthetic a priori, getting knowledge of reality just by thinking, that doesn't compromise Peirce's naturalism. So to understand why that is, yeah, which I think, you know, is something that Anger doesn't understand, but to understand why that is we need to think carefully about what does naturalism really mean. So it seems that for some philosophers today, commitment to naturalism means that you let scientists answer all of the questions about reality and then you give philosophy a role which was described by Locke, I think, as an underlaborer, just kind of clearing the way for Uh, the natural scientists, to do what they do and tell us about reality. For Peirce, naturalism was much more about methods. So it wasn't so much about the content of what we come to believe, but the way in which we got there. For Peirce, the scientific revolution that happened in the 17th century was really important for him in developing his philosophy And so he thought what was most important about what happened in the 17th century was the refinement and development of the experimental method, finding ways to test your beliefs against the world and actually ask the world a question and receive an answer that you might not have expected we can think about this in terms of Peirce's categories as a secondness, a secondness in our thinking. The experimental method, I mean, we always get nasty surprises in our thinking when our, we find out our beliefs are not true, but the experimental method in the 17th century was the first really structured way of saying, okay, bring it on, give me more secondness so that I can learn more about reality. So if we think of that method in very general terms, It would be having expectations about the world and then putting yourself in a situation that the world can correct you. And Peirce thought it was really important that inquiry be public and repeatable. And for that, you need a community of inquiry. He was the originator of, of that concept. So once we understand the experimental method in those very general terms, It's not that you can only do that in physics, chemistry and biology. You can apply that general model in lots of other areas of inquiry as well. So what's important is just that we put ourselves in a community of inquiry and we try to find a way that we can expose ourselves to Opinions other than our own and uh, consequences of our beliefs that we might not have thought about. You know. And this can take place maybe through discussion, critique, as well as putting something in a test tube in a lab, for instance. So I think that Peirce's concept of naturalism is much more broad and general than the way contemporary analytic philosophy sees naturalism. But I think it 's correspondingly more powerful and more fruitful
0: so in a way, it sounds like what he it sounds like what he was recommending is it 's similar to contemporary naturalism in that uh, he thought it made sense for at least in certain cases philosophy to borrow some of the methodology from science, but he was really talking more about the methodology at a more abstract level, so not it 's not like philosophy should just like. Perform electrophoresis and that's the only thing for philosophy ever to do. But really more sort of the general idea where you're observing what's the case, you're maybe coming across some surprising results, and you're talking it over with a community of other people who are independently doing the same thing. It's like that more general aspect of the method that Purst thought philosophers should emulate. Exactly. Kathy leg thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, and thank you for giving me the chance to explain firstness, secondness, and thirdness. <laughs>
0: If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at at @elucidations_pod, And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening.